0: Thanks for joining us on Back On Air, the podcast for operators who have compliance on their mind and road transport at the heart of their business. This podcast is a recording of our live fortnightly webinar held every other Friday. So if you like what you hear and fancy joining the live event where you can ask questions and vote on our interactive polls, just register through the link in the show notes. The content of this podcast is correct at the time of broadcasting, but it isn't meant to be specific legal advice. If, however, you need advice, we recommend that you take proper legal advice for your individual situation. Finally, please do leave us a review, and of course details of any areas you would like us to cover in future episodes. We do read them, and it helps others find our podcast. Enjoy!
1: Good. Good morning or afternoon as Jonathan says and welcome to our webinar and um, happy Friday everybody. I can't believe I was sat here two weeks ago saying that we had uh, our internet problems and believe it or not since that power cut two weeks ago we are still having internet problems so if anything does go a bit awry today please bear with us. Um, we have got a full pack schedule as always for you there is uh, five of us here today and um, so Jonathan is our host, so I'll pass over to Jonathan, uh, who will make a start. Um, Just before that, though, just remind you, please ask questions. Um, You can do so using the control panel on the right-hand side. Um, I will ask those when I see fit, but ask away and I will make sure that all of them get answered. Jonathan, over to
2: you.
3: Okay, thank you very much, Chloe. Interestingly, you were freezing on the screen there, so If you're experiencing freezing on the screen of us while we're talking, you probably think that's a benefit. But if you don't think that's a benefit, can you let us know? We are all plugged into the Wi-Fi and we have got ridiculously fast broadband here, but it clearly doesn't seem to be working as smoothly as normal today. So um, you'll just have to keep in touch with us on that. So we've got a great uh, number of topics here. Um, First of all, we're going to start talking about accidents, but these are accidents at work. And what you should be doing and how you should be dealing with this um, we seem to have had a run on those in the last six months that we've been dealing with so we thought it might be quite helpful just to talk through some of the challenges and issues that arise as well as talking through a recent case um, and uh, then we're going to visit a new video from Network Rail on um, Bridge Strikes which is um, somewhat entertaining and we're interested in your perspective and views on that and we've got our own comments to make as well And then um, all the changes to the enforcement regime around clandestine entrance is going to be discussed at some length. And um, they really have messed about with that, and I think if you are hauling in and out of Europe, you need to be really careful, um, uh, way more careful than you've had to be historically, if you want to try and persuade them not to levy a penalty on you. And Libby's going to talk about that in the second half of this webinar. Um, with me today is Mark, uh, Mark David, one of the uh, one of my co-directors uh, here, and um, uh, with an odd wave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> morning, Mark. Um, <laughs> um, for those people who had kids about 15
4: years ago, Mark was actually a Little Cook. Um, uh, he denies it completely, but he looks just the same. And for those of you familiar with the news, it's not about Vladimir Putin speaking to him on the Kremlin. <laughs> he doesn't wear glasses like Ronnie Corbett. Um, and um, we've
3: got Claire Grinrod, who's also with us here. Um, actually, Claire McKay. So I don't know why I call her Claire Grinrod. That was her uh, pre-married name. Um, and uh, she's going to help out with several of the discussions and enter the discussion uh, insofar as it might be relevant to um, insurance-based claims. And finally, we've got Libby with us, last but not least, who is all-knowing and all-seeing on clandestine entrance. What Libby really likes is complex questions um, on clandestine entrance and, uh, and the protocols that you're now going to have to follow if you want a full defence, uh, which she's been preparing for for the last uh three weeks for this particular webinar. Um, and if you believe that, you'll believe anything. Okay. We
1: have got a few people saying sound is fine, but the videos are freezing. If it gets to the point where it's too much, I'll just, we'll go back to sure, 2019 days where it was just sound. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep with it for now. But if it, if it is too much, let us know. And uh, I'll uh, do you the honor of taking Jonathan's face off the screen.
2: Um,
3: or the other option is we just have one of us on at once, but that yeah. would be a bit weird
2: um,
3: uh, when, when we're all discussing on the topic. So let's look at the first topic. <clears throat> okay, so worst case scenario, you have an accident at work. Planning um, That's for a long time to change as well. Um, now, sadly, um, everybody in business sooner or later will have an incident at work, and that incident might be a workplace accident or it might be somebody just having a medical event, if you like, in the workplace. But for this scenario, what we're looking at is an accident at work for whatever reason. And and there's lots of reasons why. Somebody might have fallen off the back of a wagon. Somebody might have reversed into somebody. Somebody might have had a pallet fall on them. Those are all fairly uh, high level and very dramatic accidents, often resulting in fatalities or very serious life-changing injuries. Um, The obligations on you um, when you've had an accident at work are high, and the expectations of you as an employer or as a manager of a business Um, or a director of a business, are also very high, way higher than most businesses recognize until it's too late. Um, And um, In fact, the expectations are almost perfect, um, even though the actual legal test is reasonable. So let's look at some of the big issues that arise. And uh, I'm going to bring Mark in in a moment. And the first big issue for us, when we get uh, called to say, look, somebody's been uh, uh, injured because something, for example, fell off the back of the wagon. Um, The first challenge we have is, who's in charge? And what can this look like, Mark?
4: In terms of uh, who's in charge, you mean Jonathan? Yeah. Well, often what happens is Jonathan say, we're contacted uh, shortly after an accident, and um, part of what we want to do is is (laughs) attend the team, um, look at where the accidents occurred but understand what the systems are as well. And very often what Jonathan and I find is that speaking to the person that actually knows what the systems are, has everything to hand, and is the person responsible for all of this, is more difficult than you would expect. You would expect it just to be a fairly simple procedure. Um, And often there's a lot of um, looking at each other across the room as to who's actually got the responsibility for all this and who's not just in charge at that moment in time, but also who's going to be in charge, who's going to be the point of contact for us within the organization uh, in relation to the internal investigation, who we're going to get documents from and so forth, who's going to take the lead on it, and I think the reason this becomes an issue is because, frankly, nobody wants to be that person that's responsible for Um, one, dealing with us um, and and getting all the documents and and being the point of contact for us, Um, but also doesn't want to be seen to be the person who's in charge in any event because there's a feeling that, well, something's clearly gone wrong here. Fingers are being pointed, whether that's internally or potentially by the health and safety executive. And the last thing anybody wants is to feel that they're the person that's going to end up carrying the can for this or, in fact, going to be even if it's not carrying the can, being the person that's going to have to be the representative of the business that stands there, being interviewed under caution. Obviously, nobody wants to be in that position, but it it must be somebody's responsibility. And I think it's worth thinking about this now in terms of who within the organization that would be if if something did happen Um, and have that person understanding that's their role And then they can go about embracing it, if embracing is the right word. Well, yeah, exactly. And and in fact,
3: interestingly, most people in senior positions in an organization will have obligations under the health and safety um, uh, expectations of the workplace. So they will have a health and safety aspect in their job description. What's fascinating is, is that a lot of people completely ignore that throughout the whole of their career. But should a accidents happen for whatever reason, um, the health and safety executive, they're going to look at that. They're going to ask the organisation who is responsible for the health and safety within the organisation. And suddenly you're going to see that your contracts of employment are going to be produced to demonstrate the expectations on you if you have that expectation. So you're far better embracing it ahead of the game and being on board with it than you are trying to recover the position after somebody's reminded you that it's in your contract. So, for example, if you're a director, it's almost certainly in your contract. If you're an ops manager or an engineering manager, it's almost certainly in your contract. So you might as well expect to be asked questions about it, and you might as well expect to have learnt about it. And the health and safety executive are very interested now in prosecuting individuals. And my personal view is the fastest way to get prosecuted is by having something in the contract that says you have an obligation and then you've not done anything about it. You've ignored it because if you've got that obligation, then they are going to use that as prima facie evidence that actually you were responsible and you should have acted appropriately and in accordance with the internal health and safety protocols and procedures but the next big question so we identify who's in charge let's say somebody puts his hand up and said yeah i suspect that's me Um, The next question is, okay, we're going to ask for, because we know this is what the Health and Safety Executive are going to ask for, we're going to ask for the risk assessments, we're going to ask for the method statements, the safe systems of working, we're going to ask for protocols, we're going to ask for training records, and we're going to ask for training of the specific individuals involved and also the generic training matrix to show how Uh, they uh, and the and the people involved in the organization were trained and furthermore we're going to ask for any evidence of enforcement against individuals for failing to meet the expectations and that might be as slim as not following the walkways Um, uh, so we're going to ask for a lot of information so this ends up as our next problem doesn't it Mark?
4: Yeah, um, in terms of who's got the information, um, are are we able to produce it? Um, Is is this is what's being produced actually going to pass muster as well? Because we talked about this previously, but uh, very often what you start to find is that generic risk assessments are being produced that aren't specific to that particular site or that particular task that's been done. And I think it goes back to the previous question point in terms of who's going to take responsibility for this. Often these incidents occur um, in in some sort of obscure type of event that took place. It's not necessarily the most obvious uh, risky events where you might have decent systems. It might be in some other area that has perhaps gone neglected and that it means that when you start looking into things that actually when we might have good systems in other areas, actually, we've got pretty poor systems here. And then, uh, and people in reality probably know that right at the time of the accident. So, when you start asking these difficult questions, that's when you start getting, um, say, um, not the greatest information back, and people starting to try and distance themselves from these things. Um, we're dealing with cases at the moment where the health and safety executive have looked into the systems um and there's actually pretty decent systems in place but then in practice they're not being followed so for example when jonathan mentioned um i think you said enforcement um it's become apparent in a particular case we're dealing with that it was never enforced in terms of wearing a high-vis um sticking to walkways that sort of thing so It's not just a case of having the systems in place, it's about making sure you're following those. And it's like most things that we talk about here, that a verbal uh, discussion with somebody might take place, but you need to back it up with something in writing because that can then be produced to the investigating authorities as your evidence that we do take this seriously, we do enforce uh, in relation to our systems. So, do make sure that even as something as basic as Jonathan says, as sticking to walkways is enforced. Review CCTV footage from time to time to make sure people are sticking to those uh, systems that you've got in place and call people out where they're not sticking <coughs> to them. Because if an accident does occur, then you can rely back on that information and without it, you're struggling.
3: Yeah, and I think one of, I'm, I'm going to come on to some slightly different topics in a moment, but one of the other bigger areas of concern that I often see, and in fact I've had a phone call this week with an operator with this type of problem, they're using a consultancy, uh, which is actually an employment-based consultancy by all appearances by their title, but they offer some sort of consultancy around the health and safety as well but what we're discovering is they're not really suitable for such a high risk industry Mm. so there's a lot of health and safety consultancies out there that are very good at telling an office like ours how to run a safer office Um, let's face it that shouldn't be too challenging we don't do high risk items we do have A lot of electrical equipment and we do have rules about wires and things like that but we we certainly don't have heavy loading and unloading of goods um, and we certainly don't have large vehicle movements or um, large equipment movements and we don't have huge storage sheds with multi-ton items in them so the 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 difference is massive and if you're you relying on a consultancy or a product that you bought because it's cheap Um, or affordable to tick the health and safety box when the time comes that we're asking for the records when the time comes that we're asking for the documents and the training records etc what we often find is people pull what i would describe as generic cd roms out of the cupboard and say it's all on there And then you open it and none of this stuff has ever been touched or properly managed or it was when it was first implemented in 2012. And nobody's ever looked at it since. And you've paid twelve hundred quid a year for the last 10 years for a service. But you haven't sought the service. You haven't used it and you haven't used the information you've been given. That isn't going to be a defense. In fact, it's worse almost than not having anything. Because what that's saying is that they've told you what you needed to do but you haven't actually done it. So that's a major risk. What about RIDDOR? What's RIDDOR?
4: RIDDOR, well, Jonathan, it's a specific set of regulations in relation to health and safety. I'm sure you've all heard of it, Um, but it's basically the mechanism by which you're supposed to report um, injuries in the workplace um, to the health and safety executive. And um, there's some specific injuries that need to be reported under RIDDOR. It's probably, rather than me, go through and uh, ad nauseum um, tell you what they are. If you look them up online, um, there's a pretty helpful guideline. <laughs> but basically, if the worker suffers a specific injury, then it must be reported under RIDAR. Um, but when it becomes perhaps a little bit more um, uh, nuanced, shall we say, is where there's an injury that keeps the worker off for a period of time, and then the question is, do you have to report it? Well, it depends on the length of time. And the rule of thumb is that if it's seven consecutive days that the worker needs to be off for uh, as a result of that injury, then uh, that's reportable under Ridder. And I think you've got 15 days from the date of the accident um, to report it. Um, there was um, a scenario that uh, Claire and I had delivered on a training session this morning. Um, which was a question on Rido, but I don't think we've got it in a poll t- today, unfortunately, which was basically someone with a back injury um, that was off work for five days. Is that reportable under Riddle? Um, what do you think, Jonathan?
3: It depends how the injury came about and whether they were hospitalised over it. If it's a normal back injury and uh, they weren't hospitalised over it and they were only off for five days, my guess... Is that you don't have to report it under no, no,
4: but it does need to be recorded in the, um, the, in the instrument book. book. So anything over three days needs to be recorded in the, uh, the Insta book, book. Um, seven days, um, then it's rid or reportable.
3: Yeah, and I think um, just looking at that, um, the, the there's two other aspects that come in here. One is Mark's just referred to the guidance on RIDO. In fact, the guidance on RIDOR online is actually pretty good, mm-hmm. it's one of the few very readable documents from the health and safety executive, in my opinion. I think a lot of the health and safety guidance is so huge, overwhelming and quite frankly, trying to cover such a wide spectrum of options, it's almost unusable. For example, traffic management planning guidance on uh, the health and safety executive's website, which you're obliged to look at, follow and review for your site. Well, um, even the consultants and the experts struggle to work out exactly what is that guidance saying, because it sort of says you need to have complete separation of pedestrians and, uh, and vehicles, and then literally in the next sentence, but where that's not possible, you can do other things. Well, that, that isn't an obligation then to have complete separation. You know, <laughs> it's, it's quite confusing, so get some very useful help on that. And when we're talking about reporting these accidents, there's also insurance. So I'm just going to bring Claire in for a moment. There's two types of insurance that might be relevant here, isn't there? There's insurance for employees, employees liability insurance, and then there's insurance for a member of the public or a third party, and that will be public liability insurance. So what should you be thinking about when reporting to those sorts of people?
2: That's
5: right, yeah. So, not all accidents are going to involve the HSE. You will be having accidents at your premises that are sort of uh, not as serious, but could happen, be happening quite frequently. Um, Employers' liability were a member of. your um, company is bringing a claim against you or public liability where somebody else has come on your premises suffered an injury and then is making a claim it will generally be dealt with by your insurance company and if any of these accidents happen you know the first thing you must do is report it to your insurance company and they will deal with it but it is worth noting that these sorts of accidents that happen that the person injured or involved has three years to bring it. A claim against you so these sorts of things may go quiet for six months a year and then they might rear the head and all of a sudden you've got to be looking around for evidence to um, disprove it um, uh, or you know just just to deal with the claim in general so anything that is reported to you an employer or a member of the public following an incident really really is key to take a record of everything you possibly can at that point getting statements from any other members of staff any other people who may have witnessed it taking photographs and um, and then recording it in a place which is accessible to everybody to, to go to if six to 12 months down the line this uh, claim is made against the company because what inevitably happens is that it's dealt with by Mr X who's done all the investigation but then they've left and it's all on a laptop somewhere in a box that nobody can get to and all of a sudden you don't have um, a defence to a claim. Um, so it's just really important to think about what you need, filling in the accident report forms, getting those photographs, getting those witness statements and, and then recording them and passing them to your insurance company in case you know over the next three years something something that comes in. And something else to be
3: aware of with your insurance company, I mean obviously we'd rather you just came to us and we'd handle it for you, but often for health and safety you will have a product uh, that came with the policy that means that the insurance company will pay some or all your legal costs at least at some point during the investigation or prosecution of a health and safety accident. That doesn't mean you have to use their panel solicitor. Um, so you can use another solicitor in certain circumstances, particularly if uh, a prosecution is brought, you can use a solicitor of your choice. They are obliged, as European law on it, to in fact allow you to use um, whoever you want to use. Um, so it's really important that you notify them, but read your policy and see what you're entitled to, or send your policy to someone like us and we'll tell you what you're entitled to so that you can actually access, um, uh, already paid for, if you like, legal services um, for health and safety type incidents and cases. So, there is another element to this. Yeah,
1: and before we do move on to contractors, I have just got a question. So, it is regarding grid So, regarding the seven days, must it be returned to work on standard duties or can people return to work on light duties if they are unable to within the seven days and avoid riddle?
4: Well, the guidance I'm looking at here from the health and safety executive says that um, it's unable to perform their normal work duties. So um, if they're only able to come back to light duties, arguably um, the seven day period still applies.
3: Yeah. And remember, of course, if they're hospitalised or anything like that in a more serious incident,
4: you have to notify anyway. Yeah, the specific injuries. Yeah. you yeah. suffer those that, that, no matter how, how short a period. So there's it, a, yeah, it's be. not it's not any accident
3: doesn't have to be notified if they can return to work within seven days. You know, if you if somebody has to go to hospital, is then kept in overnight um, and hospitalised effectively, then there's other duties. So every single accident needs reviewing under it Uh, to make sure the notification obligations, obviously a paper cut, doesn't normally need notifying. We get a few of those in our firm. Chloe's giving me the death stare because she's realizing we need to move on and she's worrying about the time with plenty of time. Um, Where do contractors sit? So we've dealt with, Mark and I, quite a number of cases in the last 10 years where actually the accident involves contractors working on site. So let's look at some of the things that operators or businesses are getting wrong when it comes to helping contractors. Well, <laughs>
1: that was
4: an open question for me. Yeah, I think um, it, it's interesting because it, moving, I suppose, across the piece, if you like, that contractors are regularly issued just in the same way that agency drivers are regularly an issue. Traffic commissioners real being in the bonnet about agency drivers not being properly trained and therefore the systems being circumvented, bridges being hit, that sort of thing that you've heard us talk about time and time again on this, on, on these webinars. The same applies from a health and safety perspective in relation to contractors. You can have the best systems in the world and best trained staff in the world, but if a contractor comes onto your site who doesn't understand what your systems are, hasn't been uh, shown what they are, hasn't been properly signed in and processed and so forth, all that just goes out the window. Um, And it's often the contractor that ends up being the injured party or the person causing an injury. Um, As Jonathan said, many cases that we've dealt with at recent times have involved contractors. And and you as the operator, you as the um, site owner, end up being prosecuted for that contractor's behavior under Section 3 of the Health and Safety at Work Act and the sentencing provisions are exactly the same as if it was one of your own employees. Um, the sentencing guidelines don't really make any uh, provision for difference, the fact it was a contractor, not an employee. So you really need to look at what your systems are for making sure that contractors who come on site understand um, what your systems are. So so for a, an easy example, which presumably most of you will um, get, get involved in at, at some time or other, is, is a vehicle coming onto your site, into your yard, And then does does the driver of that vehicle know how to follow your traffic management procedures? Is there somebody there that might stop them and say, right, this is where we need to go, or this is how you need to drive through the site, or when you get out of the vehicle, this is where to go, that sort of thing? Because there's a massive risk there um, just when they come onto site, never mind any other um, type of operation. A, a, A number of cases I'm dealing with at the moment relate to loading and unloading of vehicles, and that might be um, a, a contractor assisting with with one of your drivers, who might well be perfectly well trained, but the contractor isn't. They end up uh, being uh, seriously injured or even killed, and you bear the responsibility for that. Um, so the real real problems here with uh, with contractors and systems.
3: And also, uh, if you have a contractor on site and they are carrying out activities in what you perceive to be either against your own internal health and safety policies or just plain dangerous, then obviously your obligation under the Health and Safety at Work Act is to stop that activity immediately and that may involve asking them to leave the site. Okay. But you're going to have contractual obligations there, aren't you, Libby? So how are you going to deal with that?
0: Well, I think the first thing first is you need to make sure that this provision in any contract that gives you the right to ask them to leave site in the event that they're not adhering to your health and, health and safety policies. Um, if this happens and you haven't got anything expressly written in a contract obviously as Jonathan says your duty is to ask them to leave leave site and adhere to your your health and safety policy. Um, You can look to try and suggest that they are in breach of contract because it's fundamental to the performance of the contract that they're adhering to those policies but it would make it a lot easier if you have some express provisions in a contract to say that. But I would say overall, your duty would be to ask them to leave and you would have to be able to look to try and suggest that they were in breach of the contract by not adhering to them.
3: Yeah. And um, interestingly, I mean, I've done a few cases over the years with people fitting windows back into double decker buses. Um, And what's interesting about that whole scenario is those visitors to the site were randomly picking up stepladders that they found lent against the wall and using those. They weren't step ladders belonging to that contractor. So the second element of dealing with contractors is whose equipment are they using? Are they using their own equipment or are they using your equipment? If they're using your equipment, I know it's step ladders, but have you trained them on how to use your step ladders? Have you inspected your step ladders to make sure that they're suitable for the job that those people are trying to carry out? So, in reality, you have to lock your equipment away and prevent access to it, and the contractor should be using their own equipment. <coughs> and that's a simple mistake that can result in a multi, uh, 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 well, tens, if not hundreds of thousand pound fine. Um, and we've had cases involving step ladders just like that where you think it's straightforward he's just borrowed a set of step ladders that were lent against the wall well he's not allowed to Um, and your policy should be broad enough to deal with that but also your staff should be empowered to prevent um, a contractor carrying out an activity that isn't suitable Um, and they should call out that activity. They should stop it and um, and they should get your support where that happens.
1: Quick question, um, are RAMS required for all contractors that visit your site?
3: Right, well you've got your own policy on risk assessments and method statements and, and that should be in your health and safety policy. Um, it depends obviously on the activities of the um, uh, of the contractor, but where you have got risk assessments, then it's extremely important that those risk assessments are relayed to the contractors. Um, and likewise, if you've got a safe system of work, a method statement, a safe operational protocol, then likewise, you must in- ensure that that also happens. What happens with contractors, though, is you end up with a crossover. They have their own rams and you have your own rams. So what you have to do at that point is identify who's going to be responsible for which activities. So if they're more of an expert, for example, a roofing contractor might be more of an expert on roofing, you need to have looked at their rams, you need to have identified your rams for for access to the roof, and then you need to identify whether you are, for example, giving them a permit to work for what is dangerous activity working at height on the roof, Um, but that they are taking responsibility under their RAMs and that you're relying on their expertise. And really, you need to look very carefully at the protocols around your RAMs. Um, But you definitely should have some sort of uh, uh, risk assessment and method statement around
4: whatever activities
3: are being carried out on your site, including those of contractors. Have you got something
4: to add to that, Yeah, I think the problem often is with contractors that they might have um, sent in a, ahead of time the risk assessments and method statements for you to review, which is you know, how the system should work, and someone is then supposed to review it. That's the first thing that often falls down. Another, though, is that you know they might have looked at it and be perfectly satisfied with their risk assessments and method statements or their RAMs, and they then come on site, but do they comply with those things? Yeah. Because what you might end up is with two operatives who are employees of the contractor that are just there to do a job that they've done for years and years, they know how to do it backwards, but they're cutting corners. Yeah. And, and what you need to do as, as the person that's responsible for that site is ensure that they're working in accordance with those risk assessments and method statements, because often Jonathan I see cases where that's not the case. Um, we dealt with a case a number of years ago now where some, a contractor died, uh, having a, a fall from height, and nobody had checked on the contractor to make sure that what they were doing was in accordance with the risk assessments and method statements. Um, and that, that was a really experienced individual who turned up to site. It was supposed to be with a second person. That second person, um, I think, um, rang ran sick. sick on the day. So he thought, yeah, I'll just do the job myself. I know what I'm doing. But it was only six feet off the ground. But the risk assessment and method statements made it clear that it was a two man job and yet the person went to try and do the job themselves and unfortunately something freak happened and they died. But the operator still ended up carrying the can because the work wasn't being done in accordance with our risk assessments and method statements. So yes, they are important, you want to see them, but it doesn't just stop there no absolutely
1: i've got a question for you so our depot has public access to customer to a customer services department both pedestrians and vehicles along with contractors use this although buses only use this road as an exit others don't know that our 10 there is a 10 mile an hour policy so where do they stand
3: well first of all they should know there should be big signage Absolutely clear signage is really important. Secondly, insofar as there's pedestrians mixing with buses who are not familiar with walking on and off uh, bus depots, then my strong advice to you is seriously segregate them. Um, Seek some form of challenge of the individual on approach to the site and have a sensible crossing system that's absolutely patently clear that looks like a pedestrian crossing where <laughs> that has to occur and then have an absolute rigid internal policy that no one can move around with vehicles on the side um, uh, without complying a hundred percent with those walkways and particularly the, the crossing over points. Um, but where you are mixing members of the public with large vehicles on the same site that's probably your biggest single risk of criticism and that in my opinion would be where you'd have to have the safest possible protocol to try and segregate Um, and i would uh, get some serious uh, health and safety assistance with that traffic planning if i were you um, and if you need help with that, we do have an organisation that we work with who provides such skills. And uh, quite frankly, they're the first organisation we've ever come across. And um, we've been doing this a long time, who actually seem to provide really good level practical advice. So um, they come with a high uh, stamp. We don't get anything for saying that, by the way. We're not allowed to take referral fees, uh, but, um, but they are good. Um, so, if you're not confident in your protocols on your site, then that probably is because they're not good enough. Um, yeah, and the segregation of visitors is really important. And lots of signage on speed limits. And the enforcement, you know, stop a contractor who comes whip, whipping on site with a DPD van saying, uh, God knows what speed, or, or any delivery van, and just say, whoa, we've got a 10 mile an hour speed limit, please stick to 10 miles an hour. Full stop. Okay, um, let's move to the next slide, please. Has it
1: not
3: done in it? It's being very no, bad. right, it's it is being slow. I'm it. really sorry it's slow. We're probably freezing endlessly on the new screen with weird facial expressions as tends to happen. Huh? Um, <laughs> Screenshot any good ones.
1: If you don't want
3: so one. just one thing to be very careful of if you get involved in an investigation. I'm only going to deal with this quite quickly. But there's two types, well, there's actually three types of... Uh, stages if you like to questioning of individuals on site there's a witness statement that's absolutely normal Um, any enforcement authority will attempt to take a witness statement from someone they're entitled to ask them if they're prepared to give one that person can agree and then they can ask the questions and that person can answer them and that forms the statement that is a witness statement you cannot be you a witness statement cannot be used against the individual giving it Um, as a confession or an admission of guilt okay so that's really important not the same in civil Um, a witness statement in civil process uh, can be an admission but in criminal process it can't so if you're asked to give a witness statement you're relatively safe they don't think that you've done anything individually wrong that they're going to prosecute you for the second level with health safety executive is an is a interview under section 20. Now that forces an individual to give what is in essence a witness statement. So if somebody's being awkward and refusing to take part, it forces them to do it. And, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and they, can't, they can have someone sat in with them, but they have to answer the questions by law or they commit an offence. That being said, they still can't be prosecuted for what they might say. So it actually gives them a really good defence um, if ultimately the health and safety executive decide to prosecute that individual. They can say, hang on a minute, a lot of that evidence was obtained under a Section 20 interview um, and uh, as such uh, is inadmissible. So uh, and that will be upheld by the courts. And then you've got the interview under caution. Now, if you're asked by either the police or any enforcement agency or the health and safety executive, if you're asked to give an interview under caution, that is where you are given the caution, which is on the screen there. You do not have to say anything. Really remember that line because that means you can stay absolutely silent. But it may harm your defence if you do not mention when question, something which you later rely on in court. Well, it may. You seriously need legal advice if you're going to be asked to be interviewed under caution. Never go into an interview under caution without a solicitor who knows what they're doing. Sat with you, full stop. That is blanket black and white advice as far as I'm concerned. And the third element is anything you do say may be given in evidence. They read it out in court. And if you don't agree that's what's said, they play the tape or the recording. So it's really, really important if you're ever asked to be interviewed under caution, either on behalf of a representative for the company or for yourself individually, it's really important you take legal advice on that. Because particularly in health and safety investigations, it's often sensible to say nothing because they won't share what they've got. And so you compromise yourself. But that isn't blanket advice. The blanket advice is seek legal help with the questions as to whether or not you agree to be interviewed um, straight away.
1: Okay, so I've got a question. Um, If we subcontract work to a somebody and he's involved in an accident when unloading the product, the cause of the accident is that he has used the farmer's ladders to access a valve which is above his head and falls. The system of work is not safe. And immediately after the accident, the farmer lowers the valve to the ground, to ground height. He Who is responsible for the serious injuries sustained? Well, the
3: starting point is if it's the farmer's land and it's on the farm, the farmer begins to take responsibility for that activity taking place on the farm. If he's used the farmer's ladder, with or without permission, that ladder shouldn't be available. If there's an assumed position, permission, the ladder shouldn't be available. And... Um, so the starting point is the farmer will be, as a starting point, <coughs> uh, uh, investigated for breach of health and safety. However, the employer of the driver will also be investigated as to the training of the driver, the expectations on the driver, in line with their own internal health and safety protocols and, and procedures. So it's likely they will both be investigated, and likely in a scenario like that. That they both are at serious risk of prosecution.
4: Um, uh, so uh, that's probably what, the best answer. What about from a civil perspective, in relation to that type of thing? So who would the claim well, be I against? It
0: would, wouldn't necessarily be a breach of contract claim, would it? It'd be either a negligence claim or some sort of. Thing. Yeah, it, it, might it might be a tortious
5: claim. So in terms of, it's like an exam question. <laughs> Yeah <laughs> She's handing
3: it over to Claire there. Did you see yeah. Yeah. John, woo, I did yeah. Murder ball yeah. If you play playing rugby You know
5: is
3: it past that Claire ball too, has something like, nice. to say So I've been polite
0: Jonathan like, <laughs> At all. <laughs> so
2: there
5: is potentially An
3: element of Contribute Negligence
2: <laughs> there
5: um, So But you know Both parties it, 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 It's not straightforward There'd no. be a bit of an investigation There But potentially uh, As with the prosecution side of it Both parties With the civil Same for both parties I'd yeah. say as well so there, so there could be
4: a sharing of yeah, but I yeah. suppose contractually though the contract is with the person that subcontracted the work so that that person will still be responsible who has the contract
0: I don't but from my perspective I don't necessarily think this would be a breach of, of contract claim um I suppose you could say an implied term that where you where is where you're sending the person is going to be safe but ultimately my view would be it would be some sort of negligence claim, yeah. which is against the party that's committed the negligence. It's not the contractual chain. As I said, as Claire said it's like an exam question. Whoever sent that? In <laughs> but these We've happen. Got someone from you, Clan. Like, these the, <laughs> the happen exam all, exam all the time. Question, yeah. the, I mean,
3: that, that's almost identical to the scenario that we had with the person changing. Um, windows on a, on, a, on a bus a few years ago. So it's, yeah, these, these are quite common types of accidents where people borrow equipment and then have a nasty accident as a result of basically not following their own protocols nor following any protocols that might be in place on site.
5: I think it's worth remembering that in, you don't go to work to get injured regardless of whether you're a subcontractor or not and so from a negligence point <laughs> of view you, you're going to find that if somebody is injured in that sort of scenario they're going to likely to recover some money yeah. as by way of compensatory damages it's just whether they're limited because of some contributory negligence yeah
3: yeah absolutely um driver versus the company it's not really a driver it's employees versus the company um so there might be a scenario where actually the failure was an individual failure. So a manager failed to do his or her job properly, or, um, uh, uh, or even a worker has failed to follow protocols which are heavily enforced. In that scenario, they're going to need separate help, separate legal advice, separate guidance. So always be aware that you might be blaming your manager, you might be blaming your employee, you might be blaming um, uh, somebody in your workplace, um, uh, and, the, and the business might blame that individual. And so there can be a separation of representation that has to be in law. So that's something to look out for, and it's something that will be discussed. Uh, in fact, um, we've dealt with quite a number of cases where that has happened over the years, and just to give you an idea um, uh, of how uh, uh, of how this comes home to roost there's been a very recent case of a director who's, who was given a suspended sentence but a prison sentence um, for nine months suspended for two years, um, and the business was fined as well for breach of health and safety protocols basically because of the unloading regime of the lorry which tragically killed um, an employee um so uh, in fact it was a third party employee but but um uh, so in reality what you've got here is a scenario where what the court is saying is this was the unloading of a lorry uh, um, the uh, a pane of glass on the lorry was badly loaded or several plates of glass they fell as the employee was trying to unload them fell onto the employee knocked him off the lorry and very tragically killed him. Uh, but the criticism is where was the safe system of work where was the risk assessment where was the working protocol where was the management and as you can see in this case they're not just prosecuting the company they're also prosecuting a director as well And we've seen this in recent years, the health and safety executive moving more towards the individual uh, culpability as well as company culpability. And often the individual culpability is under Section 37, I think it is off the top of my head, of the Health and Safety at Work Act um, and and carries prison sentences. So um, it's really important that if you've got this function in your organisation, or whoever has this function in your organization is aware that if they don't do their job properly, they will also be prosecuted as an individual and face prison. Okay. Um, so we're now on to uh, um, Libby, who's been longing for this. She's going to talk about... So we do get quite a few entrance cases. Uh, um, so if you do move vehicles um, to from Europe, then this is a serious risk for you now because the whole thing has changed, hasn't it, Liz?
0: It has, yeah, and as Jonathan says, I've been um, dying to come on and discuss it, and um, the breaking news. Um, but all sort of joking aside, I think this is quite a, a serious issue that if you are doing international transport, you need to take a look at the systems that you've got in place. Um, as we put on there, you we're looking at a 500 percent increase in the fines and these changes have been implemented from the 13th of February so not long at all Um, since 2002 the fine has been 2,000 per clandestine entrant but then that's 2,000 for the company and 2,000 for the driver so maximum 4,000 there was a consultation on this. I think it was back in 2021, because it's being viewed that that isn't enough of a deterrent to make companies ensure that the system they've got in place will prevent clandestine entrance. So we've had a public consultation in in 2021, and there's now been changes that have been implemented through the Nationality and Borders Act 2022. So it used to be a statutory defense that if you had um, a system in place to prevent clandestine entrance that was that was approved and followed the protocol that was in place you wouldn't be fined now that that is no longer the case okay so even if you can show that you've got that system in place it's not necessarily then going to be um, a defense that will get you off a fine it's also going to be the case now that a first um, offence will actually be 12,000 per clandestine as opposed to the four and that can go up to 20,000 if it's a, if it's a second third offence you know we sometimes speak to operators who are found with five or six clandestines on, on the vehicle so it, in my mind this this could be bust or not for a company if you found with five or six clandestines mm-hmm. from the from the 13th of February so I think it's really really important you review what well, even if you you're sat there thinking well, we've never been caught with any clandestine entrance we're quite happy with our system i would urge you to review your system given what's at stake so going over to our our second slide which again will prevent things better than than cure now i know obviously what we've said is it is no longer going to be a statutory defense that you can say well look we were following the the approved system so we can't be fine but whenever they are working out these fines there's there's usually things that they will take into account that will reduce them and whilst we haven't had any of the regulations on the additional things that they're going to or i haven't seen yet the regulations are going to be issued by the by the secretary of state to say what additional things that you're going to need to be doing to to make sure that you clandestines don't get on the vehicles what I would say is a first protocol for me would be there is a civil penalty accreditation scheme which effectively what you do is and I've got the form here is you get they review the system that you've got in place to prevent clandestine entrance. And just looking at the form now, it, it, they will ask things like, you know, how do you how do you secure the load? What training do you have in place? What do you do to check the, the, the checklist when when? drivers come back and they'll look at that and tell you whether they approve the system that you've got in place now i would make sure that you're doing that because whilst it's not a statutory defense anymore it at least shows that you're doing everything that you can keep your eyes out for the regulations and we'll certainly do updates on it anyway of additional guidance that's given and regulations of what you need to be doing something else important that 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 is also coming to place is you can be fined even if you haven't got any clandestine entrance on the vehicles if it's found that you, that you haven't put the security in place to prevent them so how that's going to work in practice i don't know i don't know if you'll be getting checks on the borders and things like that and if it's shown that you've, you've you've not got a good system in place you'll be fined but it's not just going to be fined now for have being found with clandestines on the vehicles it's even if they're not on there and you haven't got a good system in place what that level of fine again is going to be again don't know yet and we'll keep you updated but I think the overall message at the moment is that this this is changing from an amount of money that probably is a business you could think well it's a lot of money but we can swallow it to an amount that in my eyes if you caught with quite a few um, clandestines on the vehicle it it could be the, the end to a business so please look at the system we've got in place. That is something we can help you with if you if you look at the form and it's something you need assistance with. We can help with that. And again, keep, keep your eye out for any changes. And obviously we will update as well. But it, it, it is there are changes and they, they can be detrimental.
1: I know the CPT here is saying that they are making all their members aware. So, yes, um, yeah, they are. I think we had a, a
0: chat with with Andrew McGuinness earlier in the week about it. And I know that they are aware of it and doing everything they can as well.
3: I think with regard to um, these protocols, it's clear that they're putting as much onus on an operator as they possibly can to prevent clandestines. I don't know if you've been at the ports and seen this. Uh, Maybe many of the listeners aren't familiar with what it's actually like, but it it is chaotic. I mean, I've seen... (coughs) Um, people trying to get onto vehicles, sprinting behind vehicles down the road. They've managed to open the back door the, uh, of say a container, they're then trying to leap onto the container literally 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, it's going around a roundabout. It's absolute mayhem um, and, uh, and I do have huge sympathies for operators in this environment mm-hmm. but this is going to be something that um, is not going to get easier for you, so act now. The one thing that is of benefit is they have to give you this guidance. They have an obligation under the Regulator's Code to give you guidance. And if they don't give you guidance, um, then you may be able to use the lack of guidance as a uh, a defence. But you're going to have to spend a lot of money taking that defence because you're going to have to judicially review the decision to issue the penalty. Um, well, so, default, which is good for us. We'll do
0: that. Yeah, the, well, the default position as well is if you haven't had the guidance yet or the regulations, then all that's there at the moment is is this the code, civil penalty code of practice yeah. and the civil penalty accreditation scheme. So that's all that's available at the moment. So that's all you can do. But again, what I would say is please do review the system that you've got in place.
3: Yeah. Okay. Even if you
0: think it's a good system, review it and at least make sure it aligns with the accreditation scheme.
3: Mark's trying to get a word in sideways.
4: Well, I'm conscious of time, but the one thing that I thought was that seeing as the fines have gone up now, the chances of a driver being able to afford to pay their fine Mm -hmm. are reduced. So actually for operators, it's much more likely now you're going to be landed with the driver's fine as well as your own. And so it's effectively double the amounts that... You're jointly in service
0: liable for the driver as well. So... As Mark says previously, it might have been that if they were still working for you, you could agree an arrangement where they paid you back or they would pay it. But at that amount, you're jointly and severally liable. So, you know, it's a lot of money.
1: I've had a few comments about this, but one of them is this put um, I've come through Calais with a fully secure trailer and two clandestines climbed climbed up on top of the roof and cut the roof, it was in broad daylight heading southbound.
3: Yeah, it's incredible, I've seen it um, for real and it's incredible the (coughs) length these individuals are going to 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 get onto and into and and around because I saw somebody climb under a bus uh, um, uh, coach (laughs) um, and fully get underneath it and then just hold himself up on the chassis underneath this bus unfortunately because i was parked a few behind i reported it to the dock officials and they came and removed the individual but it was unbelievable to see you know this was blatant in front of everybody the coach driver had no idea he sat on his coach with a coach full of kids probably coming back from a holiday it was just unbelievable so it's a major issue anyway. a few of them are like that and
1: someone's just this is someone's just said the exact same scenario really but someone's just put would you say that anyone not a member of the accreditation scheme has no route of mitigation to a fine, in which case?
3: It's going to be hard.
0: Um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem we found historically is someone will come to and they've been found with clandestine, clandestine entrance. and logically you can look at it and think they were always going to get in from the scenarios we've just heard. But if you haven't followed this the protocol that's in place, you'll just be fined. It doesn't matter if you can look at it logically and think, well, they would always have got in. That's historically how it's always worked. So, yes, my view is it, it, just make sure you're doing it how you're being asked to do it.
3: Absolutely.
1: So is there a defence if the vehicle is in motion and the driver reports the entrance to port authorities straight away? Well, yeah, I mean, you would look at that and say, well, if the vehicle was in motion and then the first time you stopped, you did
0: your checks as you meant to and you've got your load secured and everything else as you meant to then and you report them, then yes. But then I've seen circumstances where they've reported them and they've still had a fine because then when they've done the check of the vehicle, either the the lock's not been on or they haven't been able to produce the walk around checklist to show or they can't show what training they've had. You know, it's all these things that even if you do what you're asked to do, if you can't show you've been doing everything you're meant to to prevent them, you'll be fined. Because the reason they're doing this is because they think effectively they think it's not taken seriously
3: enough. Right. We're just going to show you a very quick video now (laughs) on a totally different topic. And we just want to know your opinion on it. We're not going to express too much, but it's about bridge strikes. So just watch this video and then we're going to ask you quickly what your
2: views. used. a glorious day here on the roads of Great Britain. But what's this? Roadworks in Crunchley Hole, drivers will have to find a new route, a long way around by sea pavement or by a What will the drivers do? Wilson and Sons making great progress with Mrs. Turner's furniture. Surely Will Wilson plans on taking the safer route. will be under the bridge fine. Did you at least write... You them? look like twins, huh? Oh, risky choice there, Wilson and Having Barry. a go at James and me. down your height and choose your detours wisely, you? First up to the low bridge is Johan, on his way to the Franklin Museum of Old Things. Oh, there. I know you have an exhibition tonight, Johan, but remember to approach low bridges slowly. It looks like you'll have to turn around. Oh, in a shocking turn of events, Johan has decided to limbo through instead of dealing with the traffic. David looking very nimble for a 16th century statue. (laughs) thought Morris couldn't limbo. Next up to take on the treacherous tunnel is the Tackle Queen Athletics team. A nice slow approach. Today they'll have to find another route. What's this? Wow. Well, they cleared the bridge. Now for the dismount. <laughs> Would you believe it? A perfect landing, despite the ridiculous manoeuvre. And finally, back to Wilson and Sons, who, of course, didn't Some sort of incredible digging machine in a bit to burrow underneath the low bridge. <laughs> Crikey. I hope really it was didn't pay up front. Well, that was quite something, wasn't it, folks?
3: for okay so that's um the new network rail video now unfortunately it was probably a bit broken up for you because it certainly wasn't my screen and that'll be the internet issue
1: well uh, we've got some comments about it already <laughs> I'm
3: just interested go on what are your comments what are your thoughts
1: uh well we're gonna ask, you know what um are we're you, we're going to ask a quick question So I'll ask a quick question While hopefully it'll work I know things are not working very well um, But a lot of people Nonsense, terrible It's awful That's something from the 1950s Not professional enough to inspire our drivers To improve their diligence um, A few people <laughs> Have said it's like Wacky races, <laughs> it's like not exactly a wacky races. Chloe you're definitely too young To remember that yeah, My um, dad told me about it. It's <laughs> shockingly bad. Was this rejected by Alan Sugar? Is this video about 30 years old? It's an insult to drivers' intelligence.
3: This is It's patronizing.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, someone else. drivers are going to feel patronized. It's like a cartoon that a five year old's made. A load of rubbish. Oh, Does talk.
3: anybody like it?
1: Everyone's got <laughs> Does to to like uh, it. Let's
3: lovely. have a look. So we've got one who thinks it's excellent. Well, that's good. That's interesting. A couple who think it's good, and a couple who think it's average, and 80% of people think it's poor. <laughs> I think the, uh, so we do need to get this message out more and more to drivers. Uh, and so I think as, an, as a tool for reminding them to be very aware of low bridges, it is important. And uh, diversions are one of the big issues that, that, that um, are relevant to low bridge strikes. However, um, I'm worried that it's not respecting the driver enough and that drivers will feel patronised and will feel upset by it. And the other thing it doesn't actually do is tell them what they should do. What it doesn't do properly is tell them what the protocol should be. It talks about one protocol at the beginning, which is writing down the height of the vehicle. It doesn't even say where, how, or what you should do with that information. So I think there's... Um, I think think they're trying, and I think it's important that we do keep this message. I've done two bridge strike hearings this week alone. Um, But I think when you compare that as a message with the expectations that are being put to companies on how to avoid bridge strikes, it's incomparable. That looks like a lighthearted joke around the topic. Whereas companies are facing the loss of their livelihoods and licenses for not following extremely complex expectations to try and help drivers avoid bridge strikes. And so I worry that it's belittling actually a very serious topic. Um, but it's, that's interesting. It's, uh, it's interesting to get your feedback. And if anybody's got some feedback that they think it's good, then, then I'd be interested to hear it
1: i am not had any good feedback. Sorry Libby, just a final question. Um, is there a specific check sheet for PSV because the Border Force form just seems to be HGV?
0: I, I don't think there is, no. There is a 10-step checklist. I don't know if that's what's been referred to. Maybe. Um, yeah. But the best thing you can do is if you, you go on the government website, there is a 10-step checklist on there, I was looking at it before, um, and it goes through the, the protocol as well.
3: And then one very final slide. Um, which is yeah, so
1: the
0: Scott and is, oh,
3: Laura
1: yeah.
3: it's about to arrive yeah. I don't know if you want
1: to talk about any training but
3: yeah. But we've got a load of training coming up please visit the website the Back Academy website and it was all outlined in detail um, although quite a few of those courses are fairly full actually um, there's, um, uh, there's a marathon being carried out in London uh, I think you'll all be familiar with it it's called the London Marathon it's one of those snappy titles and Laura and Scott are running it together um, and um, they're doing it on behalf of the Wooden Spoon Charity. If you would like to sponsor them, please feel free. Uh, There's a link there on the screen which you won't be able to use, um, but we will get a link out to you. It'll be on our website. Um, uh, uh, Donations, even a pound would be much appreciated. Um, uh, if you're wishing to uh, assist.
1: And someone, sorry, has just said we are members of the Border Force Scheme. It's just kind of the same form for PSV as it is for HGV. Oh, thank you very much. Thank
3: That's you. very helpful.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, everyone. Okay, um, yeah. Hope you all enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks for being on, everyone. Sorry we've overrun slightly. I will obviously blame Jonathan.
3: And there were them. about a 160 sixty five people on that training. So, thank you very much for attending. Thank, thank you, thank you. Thank you.
0: Bye.